0: Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. All right. In this episode, we're going to be looking at a fast-growing marketplace called Gen M. So they're a marketplace that connects students with businesses, and the students are able to get some real-world experience and mentorship, and the businesses get some free marketing help from the students. So their business model is that that the businesses pay them $49 a month, and they generally bring in an apprentice for about a three-month program, and that apprentice is hopefully getting the experience and the training they need to be successful in the workplace on the back end. The system seems to be working pretty well. They've uh, they've attracted over 30,000 businesses to the platform and over 60,000 students to the platform, and they're continuing to grow at a, at a really fast pace. So in this interview, I'm going to be talking to their CEO, Mo Abbas, and really trying to understand what they're doing to drive that breakout growth or if you know maybe it's just great market conditions and and really that the need is big out there but what my my thinking is that it's probably everything from the market conditions to how they're executing and uh, and just driving improvement across that full growth engine so we'll dig into all of that try to get a really good understanding of how they're growing and hopefully Mo will get a couple of ideas on how they can be doing even better through through the conversation so let's get started Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, Mo. I'm really excited to have you on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Sean. It's great to be here.
0: I mean, one of the things that I find really interesting with your business is that it is a marketplace, which it's notoriously difficult to get marketplaces up and running and and working. What do you think has been the most important success factors in Gen M's success to date?
1: There's two things. One is solving the marketplace chicken and egg problem, which is a different thing. But overall, our success, quite frankly, comes down to product market fit. It's a very elusive thing. It's very difficult to find. It's like the holy grail of startups. When you do find it, you become a real business. And then you move on to the next phase, which is generally distribution fit.
0: And so for the product market fit, was it something that that you got pretty lucky right out of the gate or did you have to do a lot of iteration to hone in on it
1: you always have to do iterations but honestly most people would have quit way earlier because it wasn't so obvious and the products were not sticking and the only reason we stuck through it in the iterations is because i had worked with Students, myself, for over a decade, helping them launch their careers, providing them job training as a small business owner. So I personally knew the value of this myself. Trying to find a product to enable this or build a product was really, really difficult. It took a long time for us to really nail it to find that product market fit. And the only reason we persevered was because we had the unique insight of a decade that's only found through a decade of experience solving this exact problem peripherally.
0: Did you have a vision in the beginning that was pretty close to where it is now, or did it really, as you understood the market more and tried things, that vision took shape?
1: So we had this vision that small business owners, entrepreneurs, essentially, could train students for the job market. That's the whole premise of the company. We built experience-based digital apprenticeships off that hypothesis. It's always been the vision of creating this global scale system where anyone could get access to skills, experience, and ultimately jobs. The vision's been pretty consistent, actually. We've we've obviously flushed it out, and what does that look like in 10 years? You know, make it more simple, make it more obvious. It's kind of hard to believe sometimes for yourself such a grand vision. Earlier on, it was just like, hey, maybe we can kind of do this. We didn't really understand the true scale it could have. I think earlier, we were kind of naive to that. Like, this could be a really, really big thing that impacts millions of people around the world. And earlier on, it was just like, seemed kind of like, this far-fetched, wishy-washy thing that could happen. It was the same kind of idea. But as you start building and and, and getting it and, and actually it works and you keep adding to it and you're building your team out and the product out, you're like, wow. It becomes almost inevitable. Like it goes from this like idea pie in the sky to an inevitable outcome.
0: Right, when you start to get all of those proof points. As you've built that team, has that been a big part of – Attracting people that were excited about that mission and the and the vision that you've been working toward, or is it something that the more involved they get more excited over time?
1: Earlier on, there's no proof to it, you don't have a lot of clients, like there's not a lot of apprenticeships happening. And it's just like, what could you sell as a charismatic founder? Right. And then once you start working, you have all these proof points, you hire a lot of smart people. And then the mission becomes more clear. You clarify your, your KPIs and your mission, and, and you have a lot of proof points and social proof behind that. Then you go up to people, you like, well, what do you want to do with your life, right, when you're recruiting? It's like, do you want to go build more enterprise SaaS tools to help people sell software that other people may or may not need? Or do you want to help change the lives of people around the world, provide them skills regardless of the socioeconomic status? Do you want to be part of a legacy company that's just in its infancy, that's going to have a major impact positively in the world? Or do you want to sell? whatever it is. And that's become a very compelling mission to a lot of people.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I think especially people who are are relatively young coming out of school, idealistic, they really want to be doing something that's uh, meaningful and important. So I, I can see that being a really attractive pitch.
1: Yeah, it is. Early on, very much very young team. But what happens is you know, as you start building and get these really smart people, then you start attracting maybe one really high level person, which you've managed to do. And that high level person becomes a proof point, more proof points to get even more high level people. And, and the mission is just, it's such a tremendous advantage to a startup to work on something that has a positive impact. Because I'm telling you, like when you're competing with other companies for recruiting, And your mission is very compelling. It just makes it so much easier to attract that best talent.
0: So you just talked about impact. How do you actually know that you're making impact? Is there a metric uh, as a team that you track that gives you insight into the impact you're making?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So for us, if we're making impact, it means that there's an active apprenticeship happening. So that's our main KPI that we track. Obviously we generate revenue as well. So MRR, all the KPIs around MRR are important, but the outcomes are generated from active apprenticeships. If, if there's an apprenticeship happening, it means a candidate is getting trained and a business is getting value. So that's what we optimize for.
0: So that's something like a weekly active apprenticeships or something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we check it every day, um, but you can, you know, the week on week growth makes sense.
0: So that would be considered like a North Star metric that, that the team is looking at all the time? Yes. One of the things that really jumped out at me was some of the language that you chose. So you've referred to apprenticeships a few times. And I know in my own experience, I ha- I've never really thought of it as an apprenticeship. I think of it much more as an internship. I feel like your choice to use the word apprenticeship is pretty, pretty brilliant on the business. I'm curious how important you think that language has been to your success and how you decided on that?
1: Super important. Language is, is interesting. Like if you ask Shakespeare, you know he says a rose by any other name smells as sweet, right? And then on the flip side of that, you know whenever somebody says a word, you have instant imagery that's associated with that, whether you like it or not. Words are very, very, very powerful. With that in mind, we looked at internships. I don't like the word internship. I don't like the type of relationship that is governed through an internship, especially with an unpaid internship. The problem with unpaid internships is the relationship – this is the core, right? When you boil it down, you have to look at the core interactions that are happening and what's going on there. So with an internship or an unpaid internship, the relationship, the fundamental relationship is between a student generally and a corporation. It is a human being to an entity relationship. So unpaid interns and interns – they go into a business, and they often don't have anybody that they are directly mentoring under. It's unstructured. It's unrelated to their vocation. There's you know, often they're doing things that they're just not related to them getting a good training experience. And there's really no system. There's no regulations. It's, it's them in a corporation, and there's a very limited amount of corporations they can pick from. It's, it's, it's a bad situation for both sides, but mostly for the student. So we saw this and we're like, man, do we really wanna create this kind of uh, behavior? No, we don't. We don't wanna put a mask up between the apprentice and ultimately who they're gonna be working with. So for us, early on, we we picked apprenticeships, there's probably like 40, 50 hours of conversations had on this before making this decision. From the core relationship, you have a human to human relationship, right? Fundamentally different, than a human an entity you may think it's a oh it's not a big deal it is a big deal it really really is a big deal and then what happens then is there becomes ownership there's a human being that now owns the training of this student and you know how important ownership is in, in any kind of company or any kind of team really right so now i as an entrepreneur am responsible for training this person, not my businesses, and I'm busy, and they figure it out, I don't know who they report to. So that was one key thing. And then the idea behind an apprenticeship, an apprenticeship is a centuries old, it's not new, it's an old term. It is the first and longest and most effective form of job training that we've ever come up with. Okay, nothing's been more effective than apprenticeships. Back in the day, it used to be, I provide you food and housing, You apprentice under me. I don't pay you because I'm giving you food and housing. You learn my craft. Then you become a master and you bring on an apprentice. You can go start your family. You can start because now you can charge. So that's why we chose the word apprentice. It's just a lot of history and it's the right kind of relationship and right kind of behavior.
0: Yeah, I love it. And then I thought it was really interesting on the onboarding for a business before they can pay you money, they actually make them commit to some of the things you just talked about. There that they that they need to actually be willing to mentor and help and train the student. I thought that was really cool.
1: Yeah, that was really important to us. Ultimately, businesses are, are getting unpaid labor. You can like you know make it prettier. They're getting help. Really, what it is, they're getting help growing their business. If you look at the naysayers, are going to say it's unpaid labor, which you know for us we take that very very seriously. We've regulated. What is unpaid internships or so totally unraved. We've regulated this. And part of this process is ensuring the businesses that come under the platform are ready to train an apprentice. And, you know, there's a lot more than that. Do they have some level of marketing knowledge and experience that they can actually transfer down to the apprentice? Like, can they look at the work and provide feedback to that? are they willing to provide that feedback, right? Are you going to be okay with talking to the apprentice and giving them that one-on-one, you know, once a week or whatever it may be? Because this isn't about unpaid labor, this is not what we're about. Sure, you're going to get the value of the help, but it's a has to be a fair exchange of value. If they help you, you must provide them value back. Mind you, most human beings, by law, by the law of reciprocation, this is a human law, you cannot get around this, it's embedded in our behavior, will reciprocate that help and provide the training. But we got to make that very explicit and clear. And that's just one actually of many, many things we do to ensure that the relationship is focused on training.
0: I can feel as we're talking through this, the the passion you have for this opportunity and for the business. And I think that's such a an important ingredient in building something big and meaningful. Obviously execution is another big part of how you make that happen. So I'm I'm curious how you've built your organization to support growth. I guess the starting point is, do you feel like the overall team thinks a lot about growth or is it more just a select few people?
1: No, I mean, growth is now cross-functional, cross-departmental. Like Our growth team actually needs our engineering team to help them, our design team to help them. I have a student business side growth teams. They uh, switch focuses and help each other depending on which side needs the help. Growth is a function of product, it's a function of, of, of teams, it's a function of dynamic, of what you set as goals for the company. If you are a real startup, a real startup grows very, very quickly. Growth being the key word there. So you have to build the organization to blitz scale.
0: How has that organization evolved over time?
1: I mean, early on it was me and my co-founders and we could build anything ourselves, right? To, you know, like It was just a small team. As you start, you know, getting more and more users, you start getting more departments, you start getting more people. Then you got to start creating structures and processes, and then systems to enable the growth to continue. And most importantly, actually, it's communication. So it's aligning the right goals and ensuring that everybody that's communicated across the board. And then from there, you just hire the smartest people. You the, not the smartest, but the best people you can.
0: One of the things I I noticed is that you actually. Have some people on your team from Shopify, which makes sense because especially when you're not in Silicon Valley, it's hard to find people who've been on a high growth journey. So it's it's really helpful to have Shopify as a, as a local company with you there. How else have you been able to kind of develop the skills?
1: Generally, you want to hire people who have the skills. Usually in some situations, you'll hire very high potential people that can learn very quickly, I don't mean you hire for experience. You, you generally hire very intelligent people who could grow and learn whatever it is you need them to learn very quickly, but they do have experience in marketing, right? So like they don't have to be super proficient in one, like one area of marketing and they put them in a box. They need to have an understanding of how marketing works per se. Uh, in great detail. And usually those people, you can put them on any kind of distribution channel and they'll figure it out because they have the baseline skill of understanding how the customer thinks from a marketing perspective. And that just takes too long to train, frankly. Like a smart person can learn how to launch an affiliate program fairly quickly, but they can't learn how to market effectively very quickly. That baseline knowledge is just too big of a learning curve. The specific knowledge could be learned very quickly though.
0: So, you said that you have a growth team. How do they fit in with the broader organization? Are, so, do you have like a, a separate marketing team and a growth team, or do they sit inside the product team? What's sort of the structure there?
1: Yeah, so I have a student side growth team and a business side growth team, and they both operate independently. Like, they have their own OKRs they need to achieve. Uh, we use OKRs as a business as a whole. Uh, their objective and key results. It's a really good framework. Uh, it takes a while to implement. It's very valuable long term. So they have their own OKRs. Uh, they sit beside each other. They collaborate with each other because you know if, if you have a marketer on the business and student side that are doing a similar function, they can share knowledge about what works and doesn't work. So there's a no- lot of knowledge transfer. I put people within eight meters of each other. Each team is within eight meters of each other, each function. Uh, we're an open office. You can literally walk not even walk. You can poke your head up even and talk to the engineering team or the customer success team or anybody on the marketing team. That's just how it's laid out right now. As it gets bigger, it gets a little trickier to do that. Where you sit people, as as silly as it may sound, is probably one of the most important decisions you can make as to how people collaborate with each other. And that's what you want. You want cross-departmental collaboration.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things that I feel like that you give up with remote teams, for example. So that's, you, you have to take advantage of having, having everybody in the office. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. You've kind of gone back and forth between calling it a, a marketing team and a, and a growth team. Do you kind of distinguish any difference in, in your mind? No, I don't. It's a group of people responsible for growing the business.
1: Exactly, right? So you can call them growth team, call them marketing teams. It's pretty much the same. I don't really know what the difference is between the two. I, at least in my eyes, marketing's job is to grow the organization.
0: I definitely think it should be. I think uh, a lot of times marketing has been more about channels and brand and and sort of the external stuff where a lot of the growth levers, they're kind of deeper in product, are controlled by a product team. And so
1: maybe when we become a much bigger organization, you can separate the two into like a more refined type of structure I think that's a long way away from, from where we are today.
0: I'm personally much more about what are people doing and what are they trying to achieve as opposed to what do you call them. You've got everyone organized in a really effective way on on the kind of supply and demand side of the marketplace. and. I guess maybe it's not supply and demand. It's the the businesses and the students. I'm not sure which ones supply. No, supply.
1: supply and demand. Yeah, it's kind of hard to figure out. I would actually consider the businesses supply and the students demand. Other people may say, no, businesses are paying. So they're the demand. But like businesses are the ones who are training. They're like the hosts in Airbnb, right? Who also actually pay a uh, percentage. So in my eyes, they're the supply and this, and then the apprentices are the, uh, the demand.
0: So let's look at the overall growth engine now. And knowing that you've got different parts of the organizations that, that, that layer across this growth engine, on the acquisition side, how do most people discover Gen M now?
1: On the business side, it's, it's pretty refined, pretty simple too. There's pretty significant channels. Uh, like most businesses, there's a few channels that work really well. Referrals do really well for us. So we have a strong referral campaign. Uh, we're updating that right now, actually, as we speak. We keep iterating that, making it more and more refined and better. Is that the affiliate program? It's a little different than the affiliate program, but they're very much so. Referrals is like internal members referring other members. They don't really do this. Like it's not. Their, it's not their job. It's not. They don't put a lot of. Like they're doing it ultimately to gain lifetime free access or a small monetary reward. Affiliates are like professional marketers usually who have systems in place to market other brands. This is what their business model is predicated off of. Some members of Gen M can become affiliates. So usually referrals are smaller time people. Affiliates are, are bigger time people. So that's how I, I look at two functions. Uh, and the, And they 're different from each other too. Uh, affiliates can be external, totally external. referrals all come from within gen N. and then the other one is ads so we do we do ads, we do facebook ads we 're trying a few different ad platforms right now as well. They work well, but i 'm not a huge fan of ads. They do work well it 's not something you want to do forever per se. they do work right so it's it 's a way of you can you know ultimately it 's about talking to your audience and ad platforms know how to aggregate audiences and they charge you to talk to them. So it's just a matter of whether you can get good unit economics on them. And the ad platform's job is to make the unit economics as bad as they possibly can for you, but just good enough that you could keep paying them.
0: Uh Keep you addicted and make (laughs) as much money in the meantime.
1: (laughs) Exactly, That's the three. So it's (laughs) referrals, affiliates, and ads and we do we do partnerships so partnerships and sponsorships as well i guess you can count that as a third they're a a component of that so we'll partner with like you know whether social media examiner or whatever it may be Uh, seo you know we do get found organically quite a bit uh, now it's growing as well we don't do any pr we don't do any kind of noise you know banging of the drums yet not something we put a lot of effort on we chose to really do much more direct talking to customers rather than, you know, carpet bombing. Initially it was actually like more like a sniper and then it became like a machine gun. And eventually you could probably carpet bomb (laughs) uh, as you figure out how to do that with a little bit of precision.
0: What would be an example of a type of keyword that would be helpful for you?
1: Marketing help on the business side. On the student side, it's a lot more obvious because the intense is a lot lot
0: more more around learning, I assume.
1: Yeah. Like they like there's a specific problem. Like people have a marketing problem. Like they try to find solutions for that in many different ways. When you can't get a job as a candidate, you can call them students. But they're not all students. Actually, it's actually becoming a smaller and smaller demographic. Like our demographics include students, recent graduates, people who are switching careers, people who are getting to the career into their first career, right? Whether it's a stay-at-home mom or, and then actually even marketers who want to learn a new skill is actually also a really big demographic. But Um, Either
0: way, it's still students if they're learning.
1: Yeah, you can call them learning uh, students if they're learning. So on that end, it's, it's, it's much more different. It's a little more varied. We have partnerships with the largest marketing course provider in North America. Which drives a lot of students to us because they learn marketing, but they don't got any experience. So they come to us to actually get the hands-on portion uh, from these course providers. We have partnerships with different schools. The schools know that they don't provide good work experience. It's a big problem for schools. So some of the smarter ones try to solve that problem. Although it still doesn't make the value of a degree any, you know, that much better. It is better. Um, so we do have some school partnerships SEO is, is another one app store optimization. Uh, we were ranked in the education uh, marketplace in the app store. And, you know, we got featured a few times as well. It's kind of a little more varied on the student side.
0: And then one of the things that, that jumped out as you were mentioning that you work with uh, course providers, are you doing your own courses? Cause I see courses promoted on, on the platform or, or are you licensing that content?
1: No, we built our own courses. We only built our own courses because the methodology that a lot of other platforms used was we found it to be ineffective. So we took their content, you know, whatever it is, uh, and we made it into microlearning, which is essentially kind of like flashcards. So you can take like an hour video and make it into like a 10-minute flashcard lesson with the same content, right? But without all the other you know, wasted words and gestures and motions that are, it's, it's incredible. If you're looking just for content, like the information, it's a like Cole's notes. We just summed it up, made it really easy to digest. So you don't have to go through the whole hour video to get those five points that they really speaking about.
0: And the truth is you learn by doing anyway, so you're providing that side of it.
1: That being said, okay, we do see ourselves partnering with content providers to scale up our content. Especially as we get into to multiple verticals, the content is a commodity, in my opinion. Sure, the, our methodology is a little bit better than some providers, but you know, if we can provide the, a massive content library for our apprentices to get the theoretical knowledge, which they could, they can then apply for actual work experience we believe that to be more valuable than anything else.
0: Yeah. It almost feels like um, as a reference resource as they're doing the job to be able to get access exactly. to it. But I did notice that people can feature the courses on their profile that they've taken. And I would assume that would make them more valuable to businesses.
1: Yeah. You can imagine. So you can, on our, on our platform, we, you can see all of these training that our students completed on Gen M, um, which gives you a better idea of, what kind of knowledge they have when you bring them on as an apprentice. So it helps qualify and build better matches as well.
0: So let's look at the activation part of the growth engine. When is someone really acquired at this point, both on the the business and student side? What kind of action do you see them doing to where they become? Let's look at the student side first, where they become someone who consistently does apprenticeships.
1: So there's a few key actions. One is they become a discoverable student. So there's a funnel they have to complete, they gotta sign up, they gotta complete a profile, they gotta do a quick little application to the marketplace, and then they, they have to have intent to get into apprenticeship, which they, they toggle on or off. And if it's on and they filled all the other stuff and they were responsive, then they are discoverable in the marketplace, right? On the business side, it's if they're paying us, you know, they're an active member is a key metric. But the main one really is, are they in an active apprenticeship? Like I can give you a lot of other metrics, but the key question is where is the value driver, right? Why are people coming here? They're coming here to get an apprenticeship. So if they're in an active apprenticeship, you're giving the value of your product.
0: I did see that when the businesses are going in and signing up that they, it's not obvious they can do it, but if they dismiss that that payment box on the onboarding, that they're able to, Browse students. I assume when they try to to contact them, that's when they're given a prompt to to purchase. But exactly. And then I also saw that with that flow, that there's prompts to contact. Uh, I don't remember what you called it there, but book a call or something. Our, our,
1: yeah, yeah. With our onboarding team.
0: Do you find that a lot of the new businesses have to go through that that touch process, or or are the majority of them able to to get theirs through just the normal uh, e commerce flow?
1: I mean, early on, it was you had to go through an onboarding specialist because our product was not developed to the point where you'd understand how to use it that well, right? So you had to talk to somebody. As we built the product out to be better and better, it became less and less important, but still important to a lot of people who just may have a few questions before they want to activate. It's not a quick call. It's usually you know, a very short call with our onboarding team and just help them get set up for success, which is really, really important for us.
0: And notice you do collect the phone number in the flow. Do you do any outbound to them once you've collected that phone number?
1: Here's the thing with that onboarding flow. It is constantly, and I mean almost every single day being changed, right? We literally have tests being run. Like, there's a, We're having a test right now where we're going to remove the phone number because it's an, an additional friction point. There's another test where... They're not even going to get to go into the marketplace. They're going to have to pay before they've even become members and they'll see a video of the product before. That's a whole other test, right? So we don't know what is the best way of getting an active member, a good active member, right? One who enters into an apprenticeship. We don't know. We have ideas that work to different degrees. To answer your first point about the phone number, we, we don't necessarily use that to engage them in becoming a member, although that's probably a good idea. We use it to get them to engage with the product, download the app, et cetera. But that's a great point. Maybe I'll, I'll mention that to the marketing <laughs> team.
0: I think the important part is what you just touched on is that you're constantly testing. And so ideas can kind of come from anywhere. It's through that testing that you learn what works better and and constantly trying to improve your, your sign up to number of businesses who who hire apprentices and and on the other side the number of students who sign up who actually become apprentices and and all of that testing is is how you keep driving the improvement so it sounds like you're doing great with that and and i'm not not surprised given your overall growth numbers that that testing is a big part of how you've gotten there before we kind of go into the process on on how you run that testing i wanted to look a little bit on the revenue side I saw that right now you charge about $50 per month for businesses. Students don't pay, but they're they're paying with their time as you said. Uh, it's a fair exchange there. How did you arrive at the business model where where the businesses are paying a subscription fee and it's free for the students?
1: For the students, we actually started from first principles asking ourselves, is it possible to create a free education system, and we ended up focusing on job training. You know, which is the main main reason why a lot of people go to school. We asked ourselves, what's really involved in it? Right, there's the content, there's the teaching aspect, there's a certification aspect, and there's the you know the social proof that you have this kind of knowledge that can be employable. Right. So when we were looking and picking at the price point. It was really hard to make it free. It really, really was. We, You know, we, we raked our heads for a long time of how do you really make it free for the students, right? We actually charged students in the past and we didn't like it. It just it didn't sit well with us. And it took a while to figure out how do you like align incentives properly between businesses and students to make it free for them. And ultimately, it was this exchange of value where they can trade skills for help. We said that, you know, these students, I like we know they're volunteer, like we, we took on a whole bunch of ourselves, they have time, they all love learning. Like they will they like nobody pays you to go to school. You go to school for four years of your life. Nobody pays you.
0: Yeah, well, right. and, and in the United States, you pay a hell of a lot to go to school. As my, as my daughter's going to college now, I, when I get that bill, I know it.
1: <laughs> exactly. So it costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and there's no guarantee of a job. It's got terrible outcomes for a lot of people, right, depending what you take and where you go. So you look at this, and you're like, man, so people are willing to volunteer time for training. This is what they do in school. This is not new. So we knew that they, they are willing to do this. It's something. And we also had our own experience, of course. right? Uh, and then on the business side, it was like, huh, we actually tried different price points. And I'm not saying $49 is the best price point. Okay, There's a reason why we leave it for now. But we did try $249. And you know what happened? The relationship changed. It turned into an employee-employer type of relationship, and the business was like, "Man, I'm paying a lot of money. I'm an entrepreneur. This is a lot of money to me. It's, it's I better how. get
0: my money's worth."
1: It's still not that much, right, compared yeah. to what we pay on wages. But these are entrepreneurs. They're not like you know big companies. Uh, they're small businesses. They're startups usually. For them, two hundred forty-nine dollars a month a lot of money. And they were like, "You know, I better get my deliverables on that." And I'm like, wait a second, that changes the incentives. Yeah, I totally get
0: that. That makes a ton of
1: sense. And then you made it free, and then we tried free, and then what happened then is the businesses didn't care. They were just like, yeah, it's free. Yeah, maybe I'll try. No skin in the
0: game.
1: (laughs) No skin in the game. It was just like whatever. Maybe I'll mentor if I feel like it. And it just wasn't. Again, the incentives were not aligned. And then we went to forty nine dollars a month. We actually tried seventy nine dollars and $99. So we know we could actually increase the price point without any change in the uh, marketplace dynamics. And the reason we don't do that right now, because we're not optimizing for revenue. It's not at all what we're optimizing for. We ended up selling at $49. We felt that was low enough that anybody would try it as an entrepreneur, but not so low that they wouldn't care about it. It was just kind of the sweet spot. And I think we can go all the way up to $79 and, and still be okay in that.
0: That price point made it even attractive for me as I went through it and thought, gosh, this, I have a lot to offer a, an apprentice in terms of skill transfer, and I'm sure I could use some help. And I, I agree, up to 79 that also makes sense. And then when you get into the several hundreds of dollars, the dynamic would would change to where you have to get your money's worth, and it's less about helping through, through training. Cool. So then you talked about on the activation side of things that you've done a lot of testing to drive that improvement. I assume on the, for this revenue, it's a little harder to do that in kind of a scientific way. It's more gut to, to some degree and, and maybe a bit of testing and, and honing in on it. I'm, I'm just curious how you've gone about sort of deciding where to run scientific testing and where not to and, and sort of which parts of the, the customer journey that you're doing testing right now.
1: I mean earlier on it was just more about what we felt was the best for the product. Wasn't that scientific. We became a lot more scientific. I think almost everything now is run scientifically. Uh, I don't know any test that's being run that does not have a KPI, it needs to affect. So if you run a test, that's a scientific method, right? So you have a hypothesis. Uh, you know, we believe that by changing this button, we're gonna increase conversions by 14%. And then this is the data you're going to be tracking, and you actually uh, you need to run it for in, in a meaningful way. So you need to have enough, so it runs for a week or affects 100 people to get enough data to make it a meaningful judgment. And your whole goal with the test, you only have one goal, is to make a judgment and a decision. That's it. Do you persevere or do you pivot? You continue with this test. Does it work? Does it not work? So we changed something as simple as on the payment wall. It was a test that, hey, if you remove the review of their of their cost, so like you, you put in the credit card and you pay now and then the test before was you get to review your payment and then you press the button and then the payment runs through. And it was like, that's the, the hypothesis was that by reducing the steps to payment, you will get more members to convert, right? Seems makes sense. Great. Makes a lot of sense. Run that test. Before you even run a test, you got to have an argument. There has to be like, no, I don't believe this is the risk's and you need to go in knowing what the risks are of that test, but then you run the test. You have to let them run the test. If the person still after that argument, who's champion the test, wants to run it because they have data that shows that it could potentially work, you have to let them run the test, okay? If it's a really expensive test, you gotta figure out how to run an MVP version, okay? But I'll give you, go back to that example. So we remove the confirmation page on the payment and it actually decreased conversions which really shocked us cuz we thought it would increase conversions. So within one week, we let that run for one week and we reverted it back to the way it was. Okay, that was a failed test. So when you are running these tests, you know, you really need to figure out what is the simplest way of running this test do i really want to spend and i I see this all the time and we used to run this risk and not anymore frankly because we just nobody has the bandwidth so we always try to figure out an easy way of running tests but you can't be doing like an end a week of engineering work to run a a simple test where you know maybe instead of changing the whole modal of a paywall you just change the, the content of it and leave the modal and, and see what that looks like. And another thing we used to do, which was a mistake, is we changed like four or five things at the same time. And it was really hard to figure out what was actually the cause of the results. It was really, really hard. So now we're a little more deliberate in like, okay, we gotta change just one thing, run the test. If we change multiple things, like we know there's a risk involved in that, sometimes we do it. Although I like to think that, you know, you're right a lot of the time, like who would have thought that removing the review would decrease conversions. I would have put money on that. I think, no, nah, it makes total sense, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. That's why you tested it. If it was obvious, you wouldn't even need to test it. We actually, in a company that I worked at in the nineties, we used to run twenty banner tests every single day. We would go to lunch and everyone on the team would make a bet of the order that the banners would perform. And nobody could ever guess the order that the banners would perform, <laughs> it, it became obvious to me that the only way to know is, is through that testing. And it's almost impossible to, to guess what's going to work and what's not going to work. And that's why, why you want to run lots of tests and, and be as scientific as possible about it. How do you prioritize which test to run?
1: That's, that's a great question. So you got to be careful because I've seen startups that try to build this massive testing engine and they don't really do anything. Like they, like they spend all this time trying to really nail the right, like a perfect test. When in the meantime, we've like whipped together, you know, five tests, two of them have been validated while this other, you know, a, you know, you got a situation and B B situation, it has been. You know, actively trying to build one test to such a great degree of certainty that they never really get it done. It takes forever and a lot of resources. So, the whole point of testing is to be able to go faster. So, there's a cost to setting up infrastructure for testing. You got to get your analytics in place. You got to be able to do the test and track it properly. And you got to have tracking mechanisms. That infrastructure is a costly. I don't recommend. Like I, I should recommend a basic infrastructure, start running tests, get better product market fit, more revenue, and build the infrastructure as you go. That's just how I do everything, frankly, purito, I purito everything. Uh, Pareto. I Pareto everything, Pareto, eighty twenty rule. But how do you prioritize which test to run? You just need to ask yourselves, which KPI does this affect? How important is that KPI? And then it's a cost time analysis, right? How long will it take to run this test? And what is the effect of that? If it's like a five minute change, and it could potentially have a, a, a good impact versus a 20-hour change. So it could have a really a bigger impact. I would run the five-minute change. And this is where it gets kind of tricky. Sometimes what ends up happening is you end up only testing these very small changes. And you never get that breakthrough or that meaningful moment where it's like, wow. Like, you know, like we actually tested a whole new user experience. Okay, This was a really big test. It took us a month to build this. At the same time, we were testing like probably 30, 40 other things in that same meantime that are much smaller. So you need to be able to test big things that are very difficult to test along with smaller things that will give you more rapid, immediate results. So you need the big wins and the small wins, not just one or the other.
0: Right. Oh, and and so who makes that decision for you guys? Is it, Are you are you the one who's kind of making the final decisions around that? Or do you have...
1: God, no. No, no <laughs> way. Yeah, there's no chance. Um you hire smart people to, to figure that out. So team leads would make those to make those decisions. So anybody on a team can decide what test they want to run. Actually, anybody can run their own test, frankly. It's only when you start requiring resources from other teams where that person who's helping you, that's where it gets a little tricky. It's like, you know, if I'm helping you and I'm helping this person, which one's the higher priority test, and that usually requires some conversations, but usually you have company priorities and it becomes obvious which one should trump based on the company priorities. Like right now, business side growth is the priority, right? Last month, it was churn. So anything, any test related to churn would trump all other things. Right now, any test related to business side growth, any resource allocation, frankly, outside of uh, core OKRs will get prioritized to business-side growth.
0: That's actually w- one place where I think a growth lead can be pretty helpful is, is kind of looking at the entire picture of all of that and keeping the team focused on what those high-priority areas are that you're, that you're talking about, and then just really leading that discussion and conversation because so many of those other team leads are responsible for a particular KPI. It's, it's hard for, for kind of individual team leads to, to make those decisions. We're getting close to, to wrapping up here, Mo, but I wanted to first say congratulations on all the success that you've had. It's not surprising. I, mean, I agree, product market fit's huge in in any successful situation, you can't get there without product market fit, but it sounds like your your passion, the passion that I'm sure you have on the rest of the team and how you're executing and that that constant learning and iteration has been really critical for, for the success of the business. So I wanted to end with just one last question of, what do you feel like has been the most important learning that you've gotten that maybe about growth now versus a year ago what's what's the one most important thing that you that you know now
1: Trust the process but check it every step of the way
0: Awesome yeah I love
1: it I'll give you the closest analogy is going to the gym If you go to the gym one day you're going to be like oh this is so painful I don't see any muscle and then it's like, oh, no, you actually have to go to the gym for like three months and you have to be doing the right kind of workout. So you should spend a lot of upfront time figuring out what is the right process. right? So you got to look at people who have a lot of success training and then follow their methodology. That would be the process you're going to follow and then trust that it's going to work. But. Measure every step of the way because you should be able to see along the way, maybe not immediately, but somewhere along the way, progress.
0: I love it. So, Mo, thank you so much for opening up and sharing how you've approached growth and and the challenges along the way. I'm sure it's going to be super useful for a lot of other entrepreneurs out there. I'm also confident, based on everything that you said, that you're going to continue to build on the success that you've had. So, congratulations. And to everybody who's listening, thank you for tuning in.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'll just leave with one last ask here. If you are interested in our mission of accelerating human potential and you know providing the skills transfer uh, from professional novice, making skills that's socially accessible to anyone in the world, reach out to us. We are looking for smart people to join our team who are motivated for any kind of position, whether it's growth or engineering or design. We're looking for the very best. And if you want to be part of the very best, please reach out to us. My email is moe at genm.co. You can email me directly or just go to our website. We are doing a rebrand. So by the time this gets launched, we may be called Acadium. So keep that in mind. I'm sure, Sean, you can mention that earlier on in the podcast and the notes. So Acadium is going to be the rebrand. But other than that, thank you for hosting me. It's great to be here with one of the best growth marketers that's ever lived. Mr. Sean Ellis, appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Mo. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.